Okay, so we're jumping back into Colossians, and uh, we're going to be looking at the three marks or the three characteristics of a maturing church. Um, but as I was investigating this, I, I stumbled across an article that was entitled, Common Signs of Immaturity. So in other words, how do you know if you're immature or not? And so I almost didn't read it because I thought, you know, what's the point? Um, but I did, uh, and here's just a, a, a snippet, three points uh, or three characteristics to know if you are immature or not. First one goes like this, you're immature when you don't take responsibility for your actions. Oh, well, well, that's why I got married, so my wife takes responsibility for my actions. Number two, never admitting you are wrong. And again, I thought, well, one day when I am wrong, I'll, be, I'll happily you know, admit I'm wrong. And then the last one was being unaware of how you affect others. I had no idea what he's talking about. So it wasn't a very helpful article. Uh, maybe it was helpful for some of you, but uh, maybe this will, hopefully this will be more helpful for all of us. And that is, like I said, we're going to be looking at the three marks of a mature church or a maturing church. And by church, I mean you and I on an individual basis, you are the church, but you and I also as, on a corporate level as a faith family. And by maturity in the context of our next passage in Colossians, I mean us growing up in the image and likeness of Jesus. Jesus is perfection personified, and the Bible says that as believers, we are being conformed more and more into His image and likeness. But now, why is this so important? Paul thinks it's very important for the Colossians church, because remember, they're being infiltrated by all of these false doctrines, all of these various weird philosophies that are trying to pull them away from Jesus, and he's thinking, if I could just get them on the right track, if I can get them growing and maturing in Christ-like maturity, they will be able to see, they will be able to discern these false doctrines that are trying to turn them away from Jesus. And so he's just finished building the case for the preeminence of Jesus over all things, or the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our salvation, which we saw last week. But now he kind of shifts gears a bit, and he, he begins to emphasize that as a church, we now need to be growing. Our responsibility is we now need to be growing in this, this Christ, this, this Christ who's preeminent over all things. We are to be growing in his image and likeness. And so our big question over the whole series is, is Jesus really enough? And so our, our answer this morning is, yes, Jesus is enough for the maturity of the church. Or we could use the word complete. He's enough for the completion of the church or the perfection of the church. But now having said that, the church will only be fully mature when Christ returns at the end of the age, when we will be fully perfected into His image and likeness. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we don't just sit around waiting for Him to return. No, no, we strive as a church, individually and, and corporately, we strive to, to grow in our maturity in Him. This was Paul's ambition. He was fighting for the maturity of the church. And so in this passage that we're going to have a look at, he's going to show us how he's fighting for the maturity of the Colossian church, and at the same time, he, sh he then shows us, he demonstrates what a maturing church should look like, what it should be focused on, what it should be grounded on, what it should be doing. So why don't you grab your Bibles or click on your Bible apps to Colossians chapter 1, 
verses 24 to 29. You're welcome to grab a Bible uh, in your chair pocket in front of you or somewhere along your row. But I want you to have a look at this for yourself. I want you to see it in God's Word. Don't take my word for it. So here we go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul continues, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. There we go. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So here we go. Three marks of a maturing church so that we are not swayed by false doctrine, false philosophies, our temptation, even our sin, and even a culture that is becoming more and more opposed to Jesus and Jesus' ways and the gospel. So the first mark of a maturing church is a gospel-filled church, or we could say a gospel-centered church. A gospel-filled or a gospel-centered church keeps the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as, the, as, the, as its core foundation. In fact, it influences the songs that we sing. It influences the way we preach. It influences our various ministries. Now, I don't want to get myself into too much hot water. But you do get churches that are centered on other things, that are focused on other things. You get the signs and wonder churches. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am all for signs and wonders. I want the Lord to perform miracles. I want Him to heal us. I want Him to, to do miraculous things amongst us. But as long as they don't become the focal point of the church, when signs and wonders are revered, then Jesus simply becomes the means that we use to get what we are hoping for. That they are esteemed and he just simply becomes the means that is used to get them. But if we're saying, if Paul is saying, hey, listen, wait a minute, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is preeminent over all things. Jesus will not be used. In fact, what we see, Jesus uses you and I. Jesus uses his church to bring about signs and wonders that he chooses to bless us with in particular moments and situations. And so if I understand the gospel correctly, signs and wonders serve to authenticate and validate who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross for us so that Jesus is revered, so that Jesus is esteemed. Then you get entertainment-centered churches. And these churches are constantly competing with the latest trend in the world. And in my experience with them, volunteers and staff and pastors burn out because they're trying to keep up with what's going on out there. And they compromise on the truth. The list could go on, but that's not my point. My point is this. 
that Paul goes to great lengths here to serve the church with the gospel because he knows it's the very core foundation for us growing in Christ-like maturity. So having said that, look at verse 24 again. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now I'm thinking, well, what's going on here? Yeah, I've just been going on about fighting for a proper foundation in our lives so that we can grow up in Christ-like maturity. And Paul says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And by afflictions, he means what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So is Paul really saying here that the gospel, which is centered on the, on the cross, is lacking? That Jesus is not enough for us? So what do, we, what do we do with a text like this? What do we do when we come across a text like this? There's a couple of things we can do. We could guess what he's trying to say, but I wouldn't recommend that. It's a bit dangerous. It's a very man-centered approach to interpreting the Bible. Secondly, I could just tell you what he means, but that would be defeating the object. Then you begin to rely on my wisdom, which I do not advocate at all. So what we want to do is we want Jesus to tell us. And the way we do that is we allow his word to interpret his word. We allow scripture to interpret scripture. So the first thing we do is we look at the immediate context of this passage. And we look at verse 22, which we saw last week. It says this, he, talking about Jesus, he has now reconciled, that's us, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what Paul is saying is in Jesus' afflictions, he is enough. We could summarize that passage by saying he is enough to justify us before God. You are holy, you're blameless, you're above reproach because of what I did on the cross. Nothing more is needed for us to stand before a very, very holy God one day. So we can conclude that Jesus' afflictions are not lacking in terms of what they are accomplished. And so we, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief there. But it still doesn't answer what Paul is saying here. So the next question we ask is, where else has Paul said something similar to this? Where else in the Bible is there this similar kind of language? And we find something similar in the book of Philippians. And the context of the story there is that Paul is in prison uh, in Rome for preaching the gospel. And this Philippian church, they decide to take up an offering or gather a gift together for Paul. And they decide uh, that Epaphroditus, uh, he was selected to take this gift to Paul. But now this poor guy gets horribly sick and he almost dies, but he, he gets the gift to Paul. And this is what Paul says about the whole situation. Philippians 2 verse 30 says this, For he, that's Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now he's not saying that the gift was a really bad gift. No, no, if you look at the context of Philippians, he, Paul really appreciated the gift. Whatever they came up with, whether it was money or clothes or books or whatever it was, he appreciated the gift. But now what was the point? Here's the thing. What was the point of coming up with this gift or this offering in Philippi, but Paul was stuck in prison in Rome? 
What was lacking was Paul experiencing the benefits of the gift. Paul experiencing receiving this gift. And so Epaphroditus is selected to then fill up the lack and get the gift to Paul. So Jesus dies on the cross, accomplishing our salvation. But what is lacking is people knowing what Jesus did on the cross for them. People not knowing what he, what he accomplished, their salvation, so that they might know it, that they might believe it, so that they might then begin growing themselves in Christ-like maturity. So look at verse 24 again. He says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that's his church. So Paul is so convinced about what the gospel can do for someone or for the church, he's saying here that he's happy to suffer to get it out there. What is lacking is the spread of the gospel for the sake of the church's salvation and its growth in Christ-like maturity. He will do whatever it takes, even if it means suffering, even if it means being put in prison, to get the knowledge of the gospel out there so that people may no longer be swayed by false doctrines, false philosophies, sin, death, and temptation. But now I'm thinking, is this realistic for us? Is it, real, is it possible for us today? Is it possible to have so much joy in the gospel that we will do whatever it takes for someone to believe in what Jesus did for them on the cross? And history is filled with stories of, of missionary heroics. And so I was busy looking this past week for a, a cool story of a missionary. But then I came across this article, the most unlikely person you would think of who was so taken with joy in the gospel, in his salvation, that through incredible suffering, he spread this good news. The story or this article is written by Michael Card. It's, it's about a Maasai warrior named Joseph. And I just thought, I'll just read the story to you. It's, it's incredible. It says, One day Joseph, who was uh, walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. It says, the power of the Spirit began transforming his life. And listen to this. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. And so immediately, he receives the gospel and he says, there's a lack. My village do not know this incredibly good news. So Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the woman beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a waterhole, and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. 
and he began wondering about the hostile reception that he had received from the people that he had known his whole life. He decided he, he must have left something out of the story, something out of the story that uh, he might have, he, maybe he told something incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. And again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the woman beat him, reopening the wounds that had just began, begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. The article goes on to say that to have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph woke in the wilderness, bruised and scarred and determined to go back. So he returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third time, and probably the last time, he again, listen to this, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the woman who were beating him began to weep. This time, he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to faith in Christ. It says this is one vivid example of what Paul meant when he said, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. That this man, Joseph, was so grabbed by the gospel, the joy of his salvation, that he went back to his village to fill up the lack of the gospel, so much so that he was willing to suffer for it, so that his people that he had known his whole life may no longer be deceived by witchcraft and the worship of ancestors, but now get to worship the true King Jesus. It's another illustration. Uh, William Barclay, a great Bible commentator, he says this. He affirms that the work of Jesus Christ is done and completed. No one can add to it. But then he says this. He, he supposes that a great scientist, so imagine this, a great scientist or a surgeon who has spent his whole life and ruined his health to find some cure for a disease. So he's, he's, he's making up a story about a, a scientist or a surgeon who has been so passionate in coming up with a cure for a particular disease that he himself, his, his health is ruined. But he goes on to say this. That discovery remains useless unless it is taken out of the laboratory and made available for all people all over the world. Those who, take it, uh, those who take it to others may have to sweat and toil and risk their lives to do it. They aren't adding to the scientists' work, but it may be rightly said that they are completing the sufferings of the scientist by taking his discovery to the far corners of the earth. You see, the way the Colossian church was, go was going to overcome false teachers and false doctrines was by being filled up by the gospel. And Paul was suffering for the sake, but in great joy for their sake, to fill up in the gospel, 
to become a gospel-centered church. And so the way we, as Sunrise, the way we are going to be a gospel-centered church, continue growing in Christ-like maturity, is if we do this like we saw last week, verse 23 says, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're going to keep preaching through books of the Bible because this is the gospel right here. This whole book is the unfolding story of God's great plan of salvation for us from Genesis right through to Revelation. And then we're going to do life around the gospel in our community groups. It's just a a great environment where we can spur each other onto Christ-like maturity. And then we'll do things like we, like we did on Thursday evening at Kids Fest. Like Adam said, we're bringing a bit of light, a bit of redemption to a day that celebrates darkness. We're going to bring light into the darkness. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, this, this island is filled with churches. There's an amazing amount of churches on this little piece of sand. But there's still a lack. There's still a lack of the knowledge of the gospel. I mean, there may be a lack of the gospel in your family. And so we're going to fill it up. There may be a lack of the gospel in your workplace. And so we're going to fill it up. There may be even a lack of the gospel in your own life. A lack of understanding. A lack of experience of it. And so we are going to fill it up. The first mark of a maturing church or a maturing person in Christ to grow in Christ-likeness is to be filled up on the gospel, grounded on the gospel. The second mark of a maturing church is a, a hopeful church. I think I put glory on your, on your bulletins. It's, it's fine. We'll, it, it makes sense. Don't worry. We'll keep going. So, second mark of a maturing church is a glory-filled church. So think about it. Individually, think about it corporately. If we are, if we are assured of being in glory one day, and, and I mean really assured, really confident that we are going to be in glory one day in a glorified state with our heavenly Father, it will cause us to be stable and steadfast and not shaken in the gospel now. In a sense, it will contribute towards our, our maturity in Christ. Secondly, think about the perspective that it will give us in the things that we go through here and now. I think other than the joy of the gospel, Paul lived such a radical life for Jesus because he knew, he was convinced that he was going to be in glory one day. He could be in prison with joy. He could be shipwrecked numerous times with joy. He could be beaten within inches of his life numerous times with joy because he knew this was not his permanent reality. I think being filled with the hope of glory gives us a unique perspective in this life that contributes to a maturity in our life that is not of this world. So, what is this assurance of being in glory one day? Have a look at verse 26 with me. Paul goes on and says, The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, in other words, to the church, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here it is. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And so at first, Paul describes this, this hope of glory as a mystery. And by mystery, he doesn't mean something mysterious, like some mysterious cult or, 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 or ritual or anything like that. What he's alluding to is God's continual unfolding of his plan of salvation. He says this particular part was kept hidden for, for generations and ages. Uh, it was alluded to in the Old Testament. It was pointed towards, but now, he says, now God's just revealed it. He's just made it fully known. And what he's made fully known is such a key component of the new covenant, which he says is Christ in you, your assurance of being in glory one day. Jesus' presence in you assures you that you will have a future life with him in glory when he returns. In fact, Paul tells us that Jesus residing in us is not only for the believing Jews. He says it's for people of all nations. That's what he means by Gentiles. People of all nations who believe in him as Lord and Savior. Let me, let me illustrate it. I was, I was debating whether I should do this. Maybe, I don't know if this is going to be too children's churchy, but... For those of you who are more like visual learners, hopefully this, will, this, this might be helpful. So here's Jesus, right over there. I don't mean any disrespect to him at all, but there's not a Tupperware big enough to represent Jesus, so I just got this at the new Fosters. Um, it was crazy, but I got it. Um, so there Jesus is, and uh, like Paul says, he's been building the case for the preeminence of Christ over all things. And that on the cross, Jesus accomplished everything for us. So much so that we are declared holy, blameless, and above reproach. In other words, he has qualified us to be in glory one day. And so, here we are. You and Jesus. So he has qualified us to be in glory one day, but then how do we appropriate that so that we can be assured of being in glory? And Paul says that's the big mystery that has now been revealed. Christ in you. Oopsie. There we go. Christ in you, who has accomplished everything that is needed for you to be in glory, is now in you. So when he returns, you'll be in glory. He says something similar to the Ephesians. Have a look at this. Verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, In him you also. Now we think, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. So now he's saying, the church, we're now in him. So now we've got to get another tough way. Put us in there. So not only is Christ in us, but he's saying, you are in Jesus. And this is a, a, a wonderful, mysterious thing, this, this union with Jesus and his church. That not only is he in us, but we are in him. And he carries on, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, in other words, being in glory one day, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So now He says, not only that, but we are, He has the Holy Spirit, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
I'm gonna run out. That's you. Not only is Christ in you, but you are in Christ, but you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, remember last week, it says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, who is in you, and you're in Him, and now you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. I didn't have another Tupperware for the fullness of God. So we just, I don't know, we just do that. But anyway, that's it. This is your assurance of being in glory. Now, let me tell you what glory is going to be like. Because you might be thinking, oh, that's just out there kind of language. What is glory going to be like? Here we go. Revelation 21. Have a look at this. This is what Jesus in you is guaranteeing you will be a part of. He says, Then I saw, so John has a a vision, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, this current age we're living in, and the sea was no more. So we're not going to be living on an island anymore. Not too sure how to explain that one. Anyway, carries on. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Who are his people? It's these people. These people. The ones who are sealed in Christ. He goes on and says, And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, look at what he's going to do. Look at what glory is going to be like. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Sunrise. What are all the things that cause you pain? What are all the things that have caused tears in your life? Heartache. All those things, John says, will be gone. There's none of that in glory, in the new heavens and the new earth. And you in Jesus, and Jesus in you, sealed with the Holy Spirit... That's where you will be, with your heavenly Father for all eternity. No more heartache, no more suffering. The Christian in the church who is growing Christ-likeness clings to that hope, is filled with glory. Can you imagine, just imagine this, can you imagine what your life would look like if we truly grasp this truth, if we truly grasp Christ in us, our assurance, our hope of glory, and that's the point, we must grow in this truth. God didn't just reveal it for us to think about, to consider. No, it's got to affect our lives here and now. I remember back in South Africa, we, um, our big summer break is over the December period, and uh, growing up as a little boy, I, I, I absolutely loved it. Most exciting time of my life because every day in that holiday was one day closer to Christmas. Every day I lived 
in awareness that Christmas is just around the corner. Everything that, that happened during that holiday was processed through the perspective. doesn't matter. Christmas is just around the corner. I mean, it could have been raining for days or weeks. And I, my joy in the fact that Christmas was around the corner sustained me. The worst day of the holiday was the day after Christmas when all the presents were open, all the food was eaten, and that realization comes in. You have to wait another whole year for Christmas to come around again. Not so. One day when we're in glory, that is your permanent reality. But listen to what I'm saying. Living in light of that glory doesn't make us check out of this current world. Rather, I think it equips us to engage this world with a better perspective. Being filled with glory can impact your marriage. Being filled with glory can, can impact your sense of loneliness. That this is not your, your permanent reality. Being filled with, with glory helps the things that happen in this present life not steal our joy from us. Being filled with glory can fuel us to live a little bit more radically, a little bit more intentionally for Jesus to this world and for this world, so that they too might experience this hope of glory. But now if you're sitting there going, well, Jason, that sounds great. It sounds great. I, I want it. I, I want my life to be grounded on the gospel, and I want to live in light of glory. But it's this middle part. Where work, work is just crazy. There's so much pressure at work. Or maybe there isn't any work. Or the finances are tight. Or the relationships are in turmoil. Or the kids, the kids are just so busy, they, they're running you ragged. And you're thinking, it feels like I'm not growing in Christ-like maturity, but I'm rather drowning in my present reality. Let's finish off with this. The third mark of a maturing church is to know that we need each other. We need each other. We need to come alongside each other and disciple each other around the Word of God. So... Last point, a maturing church is a discipleship-filled church. And by discipleship here, it means being in community. There are no lone rangers in the church. Jesus saved us to be a part of a community, to be a part of his body, to be a part of his church, a faith family. As soon as we begin to isolate ourselves, we set ourselves up for a fall. We set ourselves up to be deceived by false theologies, false doctrines, sin and temptation. So look at verse 28 with me. Notice the plurality of Paul's language. He says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, with all wisdom, that we may present, here we go, everyone mature in Christ. That's his goal, remember? To present everyone mature in Christ. We could use, that word mature can also be translated uh, complete or perfect. He wants to present the church, you and I, one day, complete perfect. But that will only happen at the return of Jesus. The Apostle John, again, he understood this. Look at this, 1 John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, Jesus, we shall be like Him. When Jesus appears at the end of the age, whenever that might be, we will be in that moment perfected into His image and likeness complete in Him. But until then, we don't just sit around waiting for Him to return. 
At the same time, we don't, we, we don't just then do whatever we want. It's like, well, hey, if it's going to happen, I might as well just pull off some whoppers and, and sin. Because if he comes, I'm just going to be like him anyway. We don't take a fatalistic approach to our Christian walk because of the first part of what John says in that verse. He says, we are God's children now. Now in this present age. And so the fruit of being a child of God now is that we, we fight off sin. We say no to sin. We, we fight off temptation and we say yes to God and we say yes to God's ways. This is called the process of sanctification. It's not perfect. It's not pretty. But there's a desire and there's a fight in us because we are God's children to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. But how do we do that? That's the big question. How do we do that? Because it's not easy in this life. Paul's saying we need to be discipled. How do we be discipled? We need Jesus' word and we need each other. Look at verse 28 again. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. He gives us a threefold strategy here on how to disciple each other. We proclaim, we warn, and we teach. And all three aspects are centered on Jesus. And he says are to be done wisely so that our discipleship is effective. So first we proclaim Jesus. We tell people about Jesus. People need to know who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. This is filling up the lack of the gospel. And he says this can be done through proclamation. This can be done through, through preaching. This can be done over a cup of coffee, over lunch, at the water cooler, at work, wherever it might be. To disciple people, they firstly need to know who Jesus is. But it's not just enough to get someone saved. Secondly, he says, we warn each other to truly disciple each other towards maturity in Christ. We warn each other. We keep each other accountable. We come alongside each other and say, hey, I'm concerned about you flirting with this particular thing. I think it's going to lead you down the wrong path. I'm worried about you doing this or being with that person or doing this. It's it might lead you down the wrong path. And so we come alongside each other. We warn each other. And then lastly, he says, we teach each other. We need to help each other fill our minds with the truth of Jesus. That's how we grow. This is how we renew our minds, as Paul says, so as not to be conformed to the ways of this world, but to then be conforming into the image and likeness of Jesus, rather. But this is not easy. And I was thinking so much of our community group leaders when I got to this part of our text. I mean, our, our community groups are just an amazing environment where, where this can happen, where we can tell each other about Jesus, where we can warn each other, keep each other accountable, do life together around the gospel, teach each other Jesus, help each other renew our minds. But we're all busy, slowly getting to know you, Everyone is so busy and life is crazy. So how do we do this? Look at the last, our last verse, verse 29. Paul says, for this, this goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's saying discipling each other, walking, doing life together, it's going to take time and effort. Paul says he toils and he struggles. In fact, he uses athletic language here. Like you're struggling, you're striving, and, you, and you're toiling to get across the finish line, to win the race. 
And so making time for each other, getting into a community group, leading a group, coming to church, all those things can feel like toiling and struggling at times. But Paul says the secret is not to do it in your own strength. This is another one of those great paradoxical things in the Bible where we are to work, he says, work hard. Work hard at, at, at discipling each other, but that work must be done in the energy and the power of another. So let me finish off and try to be as practical as I can. Four quick points on how to strive in the power of Jesus. And uh, give a heads up to John Piper for, for helping me with this. Four quick things. The first thing, in short, acknowledge your weakness. First thing you do, you just acknowledge your weakness. I can't do this. Growing up in Christian maturity, growing up in Christ-likeness, I can't do it. And so right off the bat, you acknowledge your weakness. You acknowledge that you can't do it. You think, it's been, I'm tired, it's been a long day, work is crazy, now I have to go to community group. Or now I have to go lead a community group. Or maybe it's like, you're meeting someone for coffee and you know what they're going through and then you know they're going to ask you for advice and you think, Jesus, I don't know what to say. I don't have the wisdom to help them. Or maybe it's a brother or a sister. You know they're falling into temptation. You know they're going down a wrong road and you know I have to say something, but I'm worried that they're going to reject me. I'm worried about how they're going to react. I can't do this. That's what we do, number one. Then secondly, we take hold of a promise from Scripture. We get into, our, in, into the Word and we, and we find out what does God promise us in a situation like this. And we cling to it. We can cling to this one. You promise that your energy will work powerfully through me. Well, Paul says that, that, he's, that God's grace is sufficient for him in his weakness. And so we grab hold of that. And then thirdly, we take a step of faith. We then do what we have to do. We go to community group. We go have that coffee. We confront that brother or that sister. And then number four, no matter what happens, we thank the Lord. We thank Him. We trust that He is sovereign over all things. We trust that He's sovereign over our situations. And we just thank Him that He had His way. Maybe He just used you to drop a seed in that person's life. And then you trust Him with it. You trust that you did it in His strength, not your own strength. So to finish off, to be a maturing church, a church being perfected in Christ, we're to be grounded in the gospel, but living in light of glory. And the thing that glues those two things together is being with each other, discipling each other in the power of Jesus, who just so happens to be in you, your hope of glory. And so we conclude with Paul. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for the maturity of his church. Amen. Won't you pray with me? And then we'll sing one last song together. Jesus, thank you first and foremost that on the cross you completed 
our salvation. There is no lacking in what you did on the cross. But I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to be at work, filling up that lack. If there is a lack of understanding of, of what you did, Jesus, that you would fill it up so that we might experience so much joy that we can't help but share it with someone. That we would fill up the lack of the gospel on this island, in this world. Jesus, you are enough. And we thank you that you're in us. And because you're in us, we can do it. We can fill up the lack of the gospel in this world. But because you're in us, we know that we will be in glory with you. And so I pray that that spurs us on to be a little bit more radical for you, Jesus. A little bit more radical in this life. A little bit more intentional. Because this is not our permanent reality. And then I pray, Jesus, would you stir our affections for each other, that we would do life with each other, warning each other, teaching each other to keep our eyes focused on you. Please, Jesus. Amen.